I'll leave it at that. installment of the SUAS News podcast series where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as we always do at this time, we say hello and welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Mr. Egan. I hope this podcast finds you well today, sir. It does. It's beautiful. It feels like springtime uh, here in the mountains, and, um, you know, I'm... I'm loving it. It doesn't get any better. Um, and I know I'm having a better time of it than you are. Because uh, last time we, we spoke, I think you were putting out fires at 27 degrees or something. It did, I, I think I saw icicles, you know. So <laughs> how's that going? Yeah, that was that was pretty interesting. Uh, that that little structure fire that we went to was uh, 26, 27 degrees. Yeah, around in there, and you did see icicles, and uh, it was one of those challenging things. However, the clear thermal worked extremely well, and you know it was very instrumental in helping us get the fire out. So, you know, it was uh, applying all the skills uh, you know that I've gathered in the last you know two or three months to be able to apply that technology work great yeah well my hat is off my my ski mask is off to you guys going out there to put out the fire <laughs> it was cold. oh my god my fingers i i couldn't I, I swear my thumbs got frostbitten you know trying to control that <laughs> aircraft it was incredibly cold so you doing anything else a little warmer, or uh, is it? <laughs> well, nice yeah, you know, party. actually, we're, we're we're I was in San Antonio yesterday working on a case. So you know, we're we're trying to bring that new technology that we're working with on the NIJ deal. You know, trying to to discover the clandestine graves, and you know, it's uh, it's starting to gather momentum. Uh, uh, my cohort, uh, or actually the PI there. Uh, Danny Westcott with Texas State University did his presentation this week, I think, at the American Association of Forensic Science up there in, I think it's in Seattle. So uh, going to come out with uh, some of the findings this week. Maybe in the next couple of weeks we'll be able to put it up on SUS News and kind of put out there what we've discovered so far. But i got to tell you, we are changing the game when it comes to looking at that sort of thing, crime scene development and that stuff. It's it's going to be some really, really good stuff. All right. Well, that sounds interesting. And if, you know, if you want to do, if they want to do something in an extended article, they're, you know, welcome to submit for the, uh, the, the business journal. And then maybe yes. we can even have on the podcast and explain, uh, you know, I like sciencey new stuff. You know, I'm a big fan, so uh, we we definitely want to uh, bring them into the orbit for sure, because that's uh, that's interesting. You know, promising uh, use of these technologies, um, but I think <clears throat> it's interesting stuff. But I think we should uh, bring on our guest without further ado, because I think we're going to get into uh, uh, we're going to get into some good deep integration conversation. 
Um, also, uh, my, my drones are concept. So without further ado, let's bring him on. Mr. Douglas Marshall, CEO of True Norse Consulting, LLC, and a good guy that I know for a long time. Hey, Doug, how's it going? Good morning, gentlemen. Good to join you. Well, good. I'm glad that you're uh, you're glad to be here because uh, we we've got a, a lot of real estate to cover. Um, I met I first met Doug on the um, the small UAS arc that the FAA stood up. I was the uh, delegate for our Kappa. Gene, our co-host, was the founding member of our Kappa, the Remote Control Aerial Photography Association. So today. It is going to be a deep dive into the uh, that NASA integration effort, and so um, you know, get ready for some some quality stuff here. So, I guess the best way to start this off, uh, Doug, is for you to possibly give us a a, a, brief, a bio uh, for the benefit of the audience and how you came to work with unmanned aircraft systems. Uh, great. Well, I, I do have to comment on weather <laughs> since you opened the show with that. I live in the North Woods in Minnesota. Yes. I'm, look, I'm looking at about three feet of snow outside, and it was 15 below when we got up this morning. We just walked our two dogs. It was, it's six, six degrees out, and it's a beautiful day. No. So, no. No. How do you yeah. survive yeah, well, that? I, I... Yeah, it's, uh, it's cold here, to say the least. It's the second coldest spot in, in uh, the continental United States. So. Anyhow, um, well, we'll just wait, you know, Back, one more weather. I mean, aren't you originally from California? Yes, I am. I'm from Southern California. Yep. I went to college. <laughs> yeah, it's just there. the same, right? It's yeah, I grew, weather, grew up on Christmas. the beaches of Orange County, so this is really different. <laughs> just a little. All right. Yeah. Well, let's go into that. Uh, let's go into that bio. Let, let's hear uh, what oh. you've been up to for the last couple of years. Okay. Well, real quick, I, I retired from uh, law practice. Twenty-four. Well, a little over 23 years ago, joined the faculty at uh, University of North Dakota, the aerospace college there in 1998, and stayed there until 2010, and got started on on uh, drone-related research back in about 2005, 2004, something like that. And then uh, joined the team at the New Mexico State University at their physical science lab in 2011, under a four-year uh, funding opportunity and left there in 2014 and did some consulting and then uh, joined the faculty at DePaul University Law School in Chicago uh, in 2016 and taught the first, I believe, the first drone law course that was ever offered in any American law school and maybe globally, as far as I know. And that lasted for three years until the, the dean of the law school saw fit to cancel their entire international aviation law program so that went away uh, unfortunately but it was, it was a lot of fun i've been consulting since then uh, as Pat, as you mentioned patrick i was on the small us uh, arc with with patrick and about 19 or 20 other very capable and very interesting people it was a lot of fun working on that did a lot of committee work over the years with astm AIAA. um on the international level, I was a U.S. delegate to the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program in the mid-20s, uh, 2000s, excuse me, and that's a, a working group of the Arctic Council, which is a subsidiary in some respects of the United Nations. We came up with a report on the use of unmanned aircraft in uh, monitoring the environment and marine mammals and other issues uh, 
non-military related in the Arctic. And that report was eventually the basis for a treaty that was uh, entered into by the Arctic, the eight Arctic nations, including Russia, uh, some years later. So that was a really interesting experience. So that kind of brings us up to date. I, you know, I'm just doing consulting work now. I have a lot of projects around the country. And, and before uh, we, we got on the program, you were talking a little bit about some of the EASA stuff, and, and you're working on. You says you're still working on some global, global things. Yeah. Or following those at least. Well, yeah. I, I just as I was telling you before we started up here, I just literally an hour hour and a half ago uh, signed off on the final proofs for a book on UAS integration uh, on a global scale. With uh, a lot of emphasis on what's going on in Europe, and then of course here in the U.S. the UTM project. So it's been a long, long process to get that book out and and published because things have changed so rapidly over the last, supposedly the last ten years or so. Every time I finish a chapter on some topic, <laughs> someone issues a new rule or a new guidance or some other project comes out, and I have to go back and revisit it. And, it's been a real challenge trying to stay up with it because the industry is so dynamic. But uh, yeah, well, this definitely made me feel better because, uh, like I said, you know, I've been threatening for at least a decade to write a book, and it's the same thing. It's like you think, well, you know, let, let's let's outline this and think about it, and then uh, everything's changing so fast. It's it it, it uh, it's a real. Uh, I'm sure it's like a tiger by the tail project. So it makes yeah, me feel it, better it about is. myself. <laughs> Yeah, it's really, I mean, the best you can do, I think, at least my take on it is not so much a history book, but just trying to to capture what's going on presently, and then some, if not forecast, at least a vision into the future as to where we think things might be going and what the challenges are. And there's some huge challenges in any sort of global UTM or use space um, con ops or or architecture. I mean, it's incredibly complicated. And it's, it's been a real gratifying journey in getting to this point in the book because of the research that was required to try to understand what's going on all over the world. And uh, the complexity of, of the, the challenge is just overwhelming. It's just, uh, as you know, <laughs> I don't know how they're going to do it. I really don't. And it's, well, and now we've got in, cybersecurity in threats now, and, and that's – Oh yeah, and it just and then uh, yeah, it goes on too, and then even the uh, and I don't even want to go down. We don't even have enough time to go down the rabbit hole of what's going on in uh, the Ukraine and people using this consumer grade technology to gather intelligence and stuff. And that's a whole another program, but it's very oh, dynamic. Yeah, yeah, well, you could write a book. And, on and so you know, there, there's your, there you go. You, you can write your book. Yeah. Well, my book, uh, you know, my, mine would be like that Kitty Kelly or whatever the tell-all, where the, where the bones are buried. I'd have to get, like, security. Um, but you did mention, uh, you did mention uh, standards. And, and, and so, you know, and, and I harp on this all the time. I know, Gene, you've heard me harp on this once or twice, right? No, no, not you. Come on, you don't harp on okay. anything. You're easy going. I am easy going, but you know, come on. You were there in 2005 in Reno for the kickoff of the uh, ASTM F38 deal, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Talking about I remember it well. Yeah. yeah. And, and were you there, Doug? Yeah. Okay. Yep, so I was, was going to say that I think I think we'd like crossed paths prior to the arc. 
Probably. And, uh, that was a big so, room. A lot of people were there. But yeah. There were a lot of people, and I think at that point I was still kind of quiet. Although I do remember, you probably remember they had, they handed out, ASTM handed out the schedule for meetings, and it went out to 2009. Right. And, right. you know, I think that was where I, like, I took my face, first baby step in being a, uh, malign- or not, a malcontent. And I remember, like, hey, man, this schedule says 2009. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping to wrap something up here at this meeting. And uh, it shows you how uh, naive I was back in the yeah, early days. Yeah. Well, as, <laughs> so, as you know, I'm, I'm still involved with ASTM, and I'm sitting on two committees right now. And, and uh, I've been involved with several others that produce some standards that have actually been publishable and, yeah, it's a long, long, long process. Uh, I was the, well, it, the work group lead for the Operations Over People Standard for four years. And, you know, that sounds like, you know, I really wasn't doing my job to not be able to bring that to a close. The FAA kept moving the ball. I mean, we, we couldn't get any uh, coherent direction from the FAA as to what they were looking for. It was crazy, and it shifted, you know, from month to month almost. It was just nonsense. So it took a long time to to make any kind of progress, and a lot of we a lot of people dropped off of that committee because they got frustrated, like you did. Just yes. Like, you know, what's the point? So, what so maybe we should add standards to the uh, the old saying about laws and sausage. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And again, it's a fascinating process, and it was really educational. I really enjoyed the activity. But you know, when you don't have a a, a goalpost. A coherent goalpost to look at, other than some vague statement on the terms of reference or you know uh, some direction from the agency that we're trying to serve. Uh, it's it's really difficult to try to come to a uh, a conclusion on a standard that is going to be acceptable to the community. Just there's too many moving parts. That's uh, funny. Uh, I did have a picture somewhere of a goalpost on a, on wheels, you know, and I was like, "This is the, <laughs> this must be the FAA goalpost," because I think moves around. But okay, so then you were on the ASTM, and we did the ASTM thing, and I did I did part company with them, and I, I gave uh, unfortunately I guess I gave uh, Jeff Goldfinger Goldie both barrels, man, but they really. Um, Chapped my hide with that notion that you know you'd have to uh, buy or pay the seventy-five dollars to ASTM to see what was going to be in the rule. Man, I I lost it. You know, I uh, I'm yeah. just like that's that's just un-American to me. I I don't understand why I have to pay pay to see a preview of what's going to be the law of the land. It doesn't work for me, but. That's another story, but um, okay. So the RTCA, right? Did you 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 did that too, right? I think I remember yeah, I seeing in, you. <laughs> I remember the first uh, uh, two or three committee meeting in DC, I believe it was, or at Miter up in McLean, wherever that is. And there was a room of about God, probably 150 or 200 people sitting there. And we spent an entire day, as I recall, basically debating one term. I mean, it just drove yeah, that, nuts. No, that's painful. Yeah, I do. And uh, the highlight of that, and it wasn't the minor thing out in the clean, because remember they had the, uh, I think it was the 737 simulator. Did you did you get to take that first spin? No, I did. <laughs> for the, uh, it was great. It was a runway incursion scenario, you know. <laughs> I just, you know, push all the sticks forward, and uh, we're we're throttling out. But uh, 
That was a good time, uh, but I do remember that. And, uh, you know, it's funny you say about moving the goalpost and, you know, right around the canoe and all the rest of that, because uh, remember there was uh, they kind of vacillated between the blessed effort, let's say. Um, you know, some of the people at the FAA were like, hey, wait a minute, you know, the RTCA, we only have one vote, and how's the regulator going to have one vote? We have to be able to steer the canoe, so we're going over here to ASTM to steer the canoe. And just like you said, the canoe was all over the lake. Um, and, and to me, I, you know, even though you just mentioned about the four years, okay, the, the the standards work has been going on, people. You know, 17 years, probably even longer. And right. I know, you know, I was talking to our mutual friend Peter von Blyenberg, and he's like, you know, there's, and, and I'm, I, I believe it's 650 plus or minus standards that have been published through all of the different standards groups, right? And uh, right. that is that to me represents when you when you think about billable hours, uh, donations to the community, membership, travel. Uh, time off from work, whatever else, any, any way you want to kind of, uh, you know, capture this. It's a huge investment by the community, okay? Right. And then you, when you start looking at it, it's like, and then this is one of the things I keep beating the, well, one of, you know, one of the many things with the FAA is it's like, how many of these standards have been adopted by the FAA? Very few. And, yeah, not, I think there's like one in Brazil with the battery standard or something. So, with that, to me, then when they say, well, like, you know, the community and we need to do this and that, uh, the community on, on, in my mind has made a huge commitment to the integration effort. And I, and I feel like it's not a two-way street. And, and that's one of the reasons for the, the drones are proposal. Um, but let's, before we get on to the, the drones are thing, I wanted to talk about, you, you co-authored another book. The introduction to uh, unmanned aircraft systems. Now, was that was that kind of like uh, something that was an effort for like a textbook or something? Because yeah, I've done a little uh, teaching myself, and people are like, "Well, is there a book?" And you're like, "Well, there is no book." You know, well, do you want to write a book? Right. Like, yeah, okay. So is that kind of how that came about, or what? Yeah, it was intended as a as a textbook. Uh, actually, the lead on that was Kurt Barnhart down at Kansas State, and I think they contacted him. Uh, the publisher did to suggest a, an approach. I wasn't part of those or those uh, discussions. Uh, it was Kurt and Steve Hotman when he was at New Mexico State and a couple other folks. That, uh, I participated in the first edition, but I wasn't, uh, well, I guess I was a co-editor as well, but it was intended to be kind of a catch-all textbook just for the reasons you stated there wasn't anything out there. And of course, the scope of the topics that have been covered of greatly expanded through three editions. I think the one that we just just went out last April, April 2021, is pretty comprehensive. I mean, there, we could end up with a 500-page book with more chapters, but we had to cut it off at some point. But, yeah, it's a textbook. The kids, you, you don't want to give the kids back problems, you know, with that book in their backpack. Well, and it's got to be affordable, too. I mean, I think they're charging our third edition to like 140 bucks or something, which is you know, it covers their production costs and all the rest of that. But it becomes, you know, if you're at a graduate level in a program somewhere, that's not unusual for a book to cost three or $400. But uh, at the undergraduate introductory level, you know, it's a challenge. But you can get online versions of it that are, you know, uh, I think even cheaper than that. But 
We've been told by the publisher, actually, that it's being used by over 40 different universities around the world. So that's, I guess, speaks to the, the breadth of, of the topics that were covered and, and the usefulness of it. I hope it does, it does anyhow. But, yeah, no, that, uh, that sounds good, and we need that. It's kind of like, you know, uh, I, I remember, uh, and this goes back to uh, feeling bad about myself for not writing the book, because I remember pushing a certain co-host to write his book. I'm like, dude, you got to write a book. You got to put this to paper. Dude, you got to, and uh, I remember there was a little bit of pushback, but then Gene, you finally did. And uh, Yes, I did. Know, that, that uh, I know a lot of people have read that, but it was the same thing. There, there was, you know, what do you, what do you, uh, okay, well, what do I read up on? What do I, you know, where's the book? And, you know, there is that. And then, Gene, you, you wrote your book, and you, you've had that. That's been out for a long time, too, right? Yeah, at least uh, 2012 or so, I wrote First to Deploy, and, you know, it was kind of a, uh, kind of a treatise to be able to step by step some of the public safety stuff that we were doing, but, yeah, I mean, and and if it wouldn't have been for my wife, Angel, the thing wouldn't have been readable at all, you know. So, um, I again, and, and you've been urging me since I've done all these missions over the last, you know, additional 14 years, you've been telling me you need to write a book on all these missions you're going to. You know what? And I would rather you whip me with a stick than make me write that second book. That's just the way I feel about it. That's when you need to get some young hotshot with a lot of energy to co- co-author it with you. Takes a lot of. There food. you go. There you go. Maybe that's the deal. You know, it's, uh, you need some uh, some young energy. I don't know, but uh, yeah, and and my hats off to both of you guys because really, you know, there there's really not a lot out there, uh, and and even in the position that I've been in where I've uh, had to teach or train or instruct, people are like, well, where's the book? You know, I'm like, well, good luck on that one. You know, we had a we had a I mean this this podcast or people that had to make it up as uh they went along there there was nothing you know true true pioneers and 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 that's one of the uh reasons uh doug that um, you were one of my drones drones are nominees and, and for the benefit of the audience let me just kind of explain what the drones are concept is so um in certain circles i'm known as a little bit of a malcontent people are like oh all you do is complain and there's no solutions which isn't true because i write solutions all the time or ideas sometimes i feel like it's pearls before swine whatever i don't really care um i see myself now more just as a pundit and i, I kind of point out some of the things that, uh, that are wrong with this industry but <clears throat> really uh what i think is needed is is a person uh, that is kind of the, let's say, go-between between the community and the regulator. And this person is knowledgeable, kind of knows where all the bones are buried, has been part of the process, um, has some integrity, um, you know, things like this. But th- this person is something that the community can approach them and say, hey, you know, here's our frustration and the this person could say, hey, you know what, well, you know, we tried that, but the reality is, is you have this regulation and, you know, we can't do that because of X, Y, and Z, but, you know, maybe we could push to do some rulemaking or whatever, you know, and this is kind of, it's just kind of a broad brush of how I um, envision this person working in the Rube Goldberg machine. Now, one of the frustrations that I have is, and I'm sure you guys remember this too, is... <laughs> We're, we're a little late to the party 
as far as I'm concerned. And, and so, you know, everyone was aware of the uh, FAA, the, the 2012 reauthorization bill, right? You guys remember that? And the congressional mandate for full mass integration of, I think it was September 15th of 2015, right? Am I right with that from everyone's best recollection? Yep. <laughs> and uh, so we're like seven years overdue. And, uh, you know, and it was great because the FAA can't, I mean, I, you know, I mean, supposedly how this whole, uh, you know, this, this representative government deal is supposed to work is Congress is supposed to make the laws and Congress enacted this law. And uh, FAA came back, uh, ATL, uh, we're, you know, we're just not going to be ready. So, you know, sorry. And then I was kind of like, well, uh, hey, man, uh, where's the data to back that up? Uh, we don't have any of that, but it's just not going to work. So the whole drones are idea is, you know, how do we move the ball forward? And, um, you know, so that's, that's kind of where we're at now. Uh, Doug, so I nominated you, and I didn't ask you. I didn't ask any of the nominees. I just picked people from their experience and, and other qualities and qualifications and whatnot. And one other thing that you didn't talk about that you did is didn't didn't you do a project where you you went through like all of the FARs to uh, determine what was applicable to unmanned aircraft? Am, am I right with that? Yes, <clears throat> that was actually my first foray into the drone world. Uh, University of North Dakota was was uh, part of a five-university consortium called CIGAR, the Center for General Aviation Research, and it was federally funded under grants or contracts, actually. And it was Wichita State, New Mexico State, and I'm trying to remember what the other ones were. University of Alaska was the administrator, Alaska Anchorage, actually. And uh, they had all these projects out there with money attached to them, and and UND was already doing some research on other stuff, aerospace stuff, and I had done one of their projects on, um, oh, I can't think of the title of it. Basically, it was, it was monitoring or studying the integrity of airframes that are put under stress for high turnover aircraft like uh, crop dusters and other airplanes that are you know overstressed. So we had a project to put monitors and, and sensors on these aircraft to try to get some data. But then they, they came with this idea, we need to have the FARs analyzed, especially under, starting under Part 91, to see what, what would apply or whatever to uh, the emerging drone industry. And like a fool, I stuck my hand up and said, that sounds interesting, you know. I don't know anything about drones, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give that a shot. <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm PI on three different projects on regulation studies. And the original one, the one that started it, was actually published, and it's used internally by the FAA extensively, I understand. Um, it took well, me almost funny. three years to finish it. And it's funny that you say that when you poked your head up, because I remember when I first heard about that project, and I was like, holy mackerel, you know, because I had uh, – there were there were two things with the FAFA personnel, and I won't name them, but you know, one was during the arc, trust us, we got this, and uh, that maybe started making cracks about the far aim book and like anybody that had insomnia problems, you know, could, right. <laughs> I prescribe that as uh, you know something as a remedy for for that affliction um, and whatever else, and I'm sure when you went through that, I mean, you want to talk about convoluted. 
Um, and some of the uh, it's coming up now too. There's some of the let's say some of these regulations are squishy, and the new one, for example, is well clear. You know, and I don't I don't know if you guys can hear this, but so we're talking about uh, this UTM thing, and uh, people are you know they have the forecast where the skies are going to be black with drones. And then you're going to have the AAM, the flying cars in there, too, and, uh, and uh, it's supposed to all be PFR, and people are asking, okay, well, what's well clear? <laughs> and, you know, no, and, uh, you know, I don't know. What do you have to say on that one? Well, Jeannie knows this, too. I mean, that debate's been going on as long as I've been involved. Nobody knows what well clear means because there's no definition anywhere. I mean, yep. that goes back to 2004, uh, the beginning of my experience, and probably before that. <laughs> well, so is it just like we're not swapping paint, you know? Or right. so I mean, right. some of this stuff is, um, you, you know, there, there's things that need to be defined, and I and I also, uh, you know, even even the airspace integration. So, but okay, so I think I've established what the drones are thing is my frustration with the full NASA drone integration mandate for September 2015 and all the rest of that. And I, and I wouldn't say, you know, hey, I want you to give away the store on the deal, but maybe, you know, maybe you could highlight, like, you know, some of the positive stuff that, that could be, um, you know, let's say reinvigorated or some of the, the holes in the wheel of Swiss cheese that need to be worked on or, or maybe some of the deficiencies you see that would, uh, and ideas where we, we could, you know, get the ball rolling again and get, Get that full NAS integration. I know that's a lot of real estate to cover, but maybe we could break off chunks. Yeah, well, that's of course that's a book by itself. But uh, you know, <laughs> you touched on on the characteristics that you see would be uh, desirable for a drone czar or you know some sort of czar. You know, there've been a lot of czars in our government over the years. I mean, dozens or hundreds actually. You know, <laughs> some of the more famous names are Paul Volcker over at Economics and. Uh, Richard Clark in cybersecurity, Elizabeth Warren in e-commerce, more recently Bill Bennett on drugs, and now President Biden announced a new one Tuesday night during his State of the Union address on uh, prosecuting pandemic fraud. So just calling somebody a czar doesn't necessarily mean that <laughs> they have any authority. But I think the key to success is, is I think he touched on all these points, but getting the right person who doesn't have an ax to grind. You know, they're not representing any particular faction uh, who has the ability to serve as a liaison between the agency, between the FAA and the, or the DOT or both, and some independent body. Uh, they need to have clear mandates. They need to have adequate funding to do the work, a reasonable mm-hmm. timeline, some decision-making authority, uh, maybe, you know, with congressional <laughs> oversight, uh, that talent for getting people to work together, which is hard to find. And have a thick skin because whoever it is has got to catch hell from all directions for a long time. Oh. I mean, unfunded I, mandates are another book you could write. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and with, with an FAA that has routinely not uh, met the mandates uh, put out there by Congress with no repercussions whatsoever within mm-hmm. the agency and yeah. the department. Um, yeah. You know, what do you do? How do you enforce a congressional mandate other than pulling funding? You don't want to do that. So, you know, it's a, between a rock and a hard place. But. 
Yeah, I, I uh, sometimes I joke about the uh, process being like on the pace of a you know narcoleptic snail, and uh, <laughs> how how do you uh, you know do they have a snail prod? Um, you know the the one thing with the axe to grind, and I think that this has been a constant, um, let's say, drag on the wheel. And you know you've I'm sure you know we could go into this and same with Gene. So you know it, it, when you talk about the timeline and the history and you know writing the book and all the rest of that stuff, really when we we look into the the people that have been in this effort, and there's been some good people, there's been some good guys, you know, interesting people, uh, people that have brought a lot of different uh, views to the table. But I would say one of the main problems that we've had is is the FAA has let company representatives um, drive the bus. And in the beginning, it it was the DOD guys because, and you you probably remember this too, um, uh, you know, in in the beginning, they really thought that it was going to be the DOD guys and not, you know, some Chinese company making drones. I mean, I don't know if you remember or you were at that meeting when I said that to the federal manager people, you know, hey, what are you guys going to do when the $1,000 Chinese drone shows up? And they laughed me out of the room. Well, they tried, but you know me well enough that I didn't, I didn't go down with that, uh, you know, uh, a, a retort to that, uh, you know, notion. So you had the DOD guys doing it. They, you know, it's like the old parable of the five blind monks feeling the elephant trying to describe the elephant. And they, they definitely saw it one day. Uh, then you had the DOJ jumping in there. You got to do this, and you know, yada yada yada. And then it's it, now it has progressed to you know DJI. I thought had uh, uh, too much control, um, and and I say that. And I'm not anti-Chinese, and I think the Chinese are doing exactly what they should be doing. But it it does bother me that uh, our uh, representatives aren't looking to, you know, let's say more domestic interests to make the rules for the NAS. And, and that does bug me, and I have been vocal about that. Um, so, and, and I don't, and again, I don't want to deride the AUVSI, but I do not see them as an industry watchdog uh, at all. They, they have their own agenda. So back to the drones are thing. It, that's why, you know, I picked a guy like you is you just, you know, you've been here, you've worked on the deal. It's not like you work for a company that's a manufacturer or a component or you're making a cell phone app that I know of and trying to drive these regulations. Do, do you, those people that have been involved, do you see that as problematic because of conflicts of interest or what, what do you see on that? Well, you know, there's two sides of that, of that coin. Uh, people that, that elect to or, or are nominated for involvement in these committees and all these different efforts represent different factions and different groups of stakeholders and, and different uh, interest groups. And that's fine. That's how you come up with a collaborative, you know, a result when you're trying to get something done. But as you know, you know, they're, they're all protecting their own interests. And so having the right person in charge of all that to understand what those competing interests are, without letting any one individual drive the narrative, you know, through the, the entire process. Uh, it, it takes a magician to be able to do that. It really does. I mean, our government is totally torn right now for the same reasons, um, you know, p- partisanship and, you know, just different interests pulling and pushing against one another for not so much common goals, but uh, 
you know, you, you mentioned China or Asia, you know, the advanced air mobility or UAM projects are already basically a reality. I mean, they're doing this kind of stuff already. Um, I don't see that happening here for years. I really don't because there are too many competing interests. Um, you know, with the U.S. Agreed, and that's unfortunate. It is. It really is. Uh, it's an, building a, a, a UTM or U-space architecture or framework that can work and also be invulnerable to attack, you know, through cyber uh, attacks or, or elsewhere, and something that everybody will, will agree to is an extraordinarily complicated problem. I mean, I, I can't overemphasize how uh, complicated it is. And we've got an agency with the FAA who has other things in their mind. Uh, you know, they're dealing with the Boeing 737 MAX debacle. Yes. And an agency that, from the public perception, has been captured by Boeing. And I think they're more worried about that than they are solving the, the, the drone issue right now because they've got egg on their face that's going to take them years to recover from. Not to well, that, the lawsuits that are coming out of this. Well, that and the 5G debacle, I mean, when you have a head of an, a foreign airline, basically, uh, you know, I don't want to say it was attacking, but basically calling you names, you know, uh, as the administrator. I mean, the administrator is stepping down to, quote, unquote, spend more time with his family. Right. I, I find that dubious. I, I think that there are a lot of problems. And then even, you know, Pecky Gilligan and Nick Sabatini and, you know, some of the other people that say retired or had to leave the FAA. Uh, and and I, I do believe it was because of this. We're off ramp with the 737 thing, man. I mean, that's if you read the foreign press on that, it's bad. It is really bad, and nobody really wants to meet up on domestically, you know. Right. So, but can you imagine the, I, the response being different if, if those airplanes had crashed in the U.S., flown by U.S. Oh, carriers? It would I be, mean, uh, there'd be people that would be in front of a congressional committee, you know, the next day. But the, well, the that fact that they bad. happen to have foreign carriers and, and foreign nationals, it's it's disgraceful. It's not it is. Properly. The, the other uh, issue, you know, if that did happen domestically, is, is, and this is another thing even with the drone thing that most of the people don't understand, is uh, the aviation liability in the United States, is, as far as I know, still has no cap on it. Is, am I correct? That's correct. So, you know, you, if that happened here, uh, whew, it'd be crazy. But... Um, you know, not only uh, not only those things, you know, I don't really believe that they're, um, you know, people, you know, there's a lot of good people at the FAA, and, and I'm not deriding everyone there, you know. Unfortunately, some of the management and the people that have been there, uh, you know, like uh, Dan Elwell, you know, has been in and out and under a dark cloud. This isn't his first time, you know. There were there there, there were other there was another instance, you know, and that was part of the uh, uh, the F-35 thing. Remember the LSA and when we were in Reno, right. they gave us it was actually Earl Lawrence gave us the uh, rah rah speech on that. But, oh, you know, it's going to be great and it's going to work. And you know, I, I haven't really seen it save aviation. But <clears throat> you know, one other point I want to hit, and I have been working on. You know, you were talking about writing books. I'm, I got like four or five, six articles in the hopper that I haven't had time to even finish. But when the FAA was created, 
and this is something you know you'll probably remember too. When the FAA was created, uh, prior to that, our, our Civil Aviation Administration was part of the Department of Commerce, and part of the charge was to uh, promote aviation in the United States. And when the FAA was chartered, that kind of got left off. But, you know, really at that time, and you're from California, so you're going to probably remember this, you, you couldn't swing a cat in California and not hit an aerospace company. There were, there were tons of aerospace companies. You had uh, McDonald, you had, uh, you know, North American Aviation, Douglas, uh, Raytheon. Aerojet. North, Aerojet, yeah. Honeywell, yeah. Honeywell. I'm the son of that movement. Yeah, my dad was an aerospace engineer, and his first job out of college was Douglas Aircraft in Long Beach. That's how he ended up in California. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there was all of this, and you know, and then I, I flash back to the Century series of jets, you know, uh, the Starfighter, and all the rest of that, and all of these different companies that brought uh, different technologies. To the forefront. So at the time when the FAA uh, charter was chartered, uh, you probably didn't really need to promote aviation because, like, it was everywhere. And uh, I think that's another, you know, I don't want to get too far off the tangent, but even Silicon Valley was really uh, born out of the military-industrial complex in aerospace, and people discount that. That's really where it was. Um, and so my thing is, is uh, with the next reauthorization is really, I think that that might need to be re-injected into the charter. Because like you said, overseas, people are doing AAM stuff now. I, I will say, you know, if you've seen this Chinese stuff in person, anything where you have to egress through props to get into the passenger compartment, in my estimation, is a non-starter. But have you seen some of these aircraft? What, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, they look good. I think uh, what NOVA, uh, the PBS program, did a special on it several months ago. It was really, really good, actually. But as I was watching that, I turned to my wife and said, that's not going to happen here. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no way in the world they, they can bring those things into compliance with U.S. aviation regulations. It just isn't going to happen. Um, in spite of the best efforts of companies like Joby and the, that are based here that you know, they're doing all this work, but I, I just can't see it working. I really can't. Well, it, it's interesting that you say that because uh, some people, again, you know, I've been, oh, he's, he's a malcontent. He's killing the future. So <clears throat> we already had uh, AAM here in the United States with helicopters, and you probably remember this, too. Right. Is, uh, you know, they, we had Los Angeles Airways. We had SFO helicopters. We had, I think, that at New York and Chicago. And really the only – it's funny is because people talk about these vertiports and even the FAA is talking about it. In, in Southern Cal, it, it was the bus bench model, you know, where you had, uh, you know, uh, the plywood roof and the bench and the helicopter landed in the uh, parking lot, you know. Right. And uh, that was the infrastructure for that. And then also uh, it was subsidized. And when the subsidy went away, you know, it, it, it kind of dried up and blew away and the accidents and whatever else. But I, I, what I see is when, when these guys are like, okay, we're going to get on the, uh, and, and whatever else, I, I, is it, is you just think it's like wishful thinking? I mean, I, I'll, I'll admit I had the guy, the, the guy from Uber had me all riled up. I was jumped out of bed the next morning and wow, you know, anything's possible. And then reality set in about lunchtime. <laughs> Do you think well, it's just Brad? 
Nocio and best intentions? What would he think? Well, you touched on the, the big word, which is infrastructure. And I think I don't think that they've even quantified what the in- infrastructure costs are going to be to try to implement, you know, a, a full-blown UTM slash AAM slash UAM architecture in this country. I mean, who's going to pay for it? I mean, <laughs> are Americans are willing to put in, some, you know, the billions of dollars of tax dollars to try to implement something like that, which hasn't been designed yet. I mean, they're working on it. You know, you mentioned PK is one of your choices. He's the guru in this stuff. I mean, he, you know, there's no better person to be in, on top of this. But, you know, we're talking about costs and infrastructure costs and integration costs. They're going to be enormous. Um, they are. And uh, we're going to run a little long. And the live portion of this program is going to uh, cease, but it's still recording. So I, I want to go on. And, I, you know, this always happens, too. You know, we for a long time where people are like, oh, the podcast is too long. You know, well, just turn it off and come back to it later because it's interesting because we usually start getting really get rolling about 15 minutes in. But so, yeah, some of this infrastructure costs, and yes, PK is one of my picks. And one of the main reasons that PK is one of my picks is his sense of humor. He's got a really good sense of humor. Right. <laughs> and he can take this stuff in stride. Um I don't believe you were at the 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 UTM kickoff meeting at, at NASA. Were, were, no. were you there? I don't remember. It, yeah. Okay. So, you know, and that's, uh, I, I kind of got in on the UTM prior to a kickoff and uh, was on the NASA call when they were talking about the UAS into the NASA thing. And uh, I I just go, well, you know, they they were putting numbers for us. And, um, you know, they, they were – and you remember Access 5, right? Yes. You <laughs> I haven't so, heard that term in ages, got, yeah. I know. So, we, I mean, we, you, you got the gold right here because we're, we're like in the uh, way back AAM machine here. So the Access 5, remember that? Everybody got – I think it was like $150 million NASA laid out. And, you know, you had uh, – uh, God, who was in that? It was uh, Aerovironment. Um, I, th- I think Institute. General Atomics Institute. Yeah, Lockheed uh, Martin, all the big guys. Right. Lockheed Martin, uh, Raytheon. And, yeah. and they doled out the money, yeah, that $150 million. And I think those guys ran through that bread in like a year. And they came back with their hands out. They were like, can we get some more money? And I, <laughs> they told them to go pound sand. Um, so... When I heard this from NASA and uh, U.S. into the NAS thing, and I said, okay, well, what do you guys want to – you're talking about – I think they were talking about $110 million. And I go, well, what do you guys want to do with this? And old Egan here is the only civilian on the call. <laughs> but they're like, oh, we, you know, everything. We want to we wanna integrate, you know, from the, the, you know, group one all the way to the global ops. And uh, so I said, uh, you know, I, I, I just got to tell you right now, it's not going to be enough money. It's just not. I mean, it's just too big. You 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 want the pony for Christmas? It's it's too big. You don't have enough money. And guess what, Doug? I got labeled disruptive. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Not you, Patrick. No, never. <laughs> not at all. I'm like, I, you know. I, I, anyway, so the first kickoff meeting, uh, you know, I thought that the FAA was a little disingenuous because they sent out a guy who was retiring the next week. You know, and the room uh, was full of people that were not aviation people. And not that I'm even an aviation guy, uh, you know, solely or whatever. But, you know, they came out and they're like, hey, man, you, you got to um, basically, you know, 
design, build, uh, run, maintain, and uh, certify a system for what you want to do 10 years in the future. You know, and I and I said, well, I think that that's a little. Uh, don't, don't you think that's that's kind of a big task to ask? I mean, do you have anything written down on paper? Uh, you know, these people aren't aviation people. And you know, the guy from the FAA tried to clown me, but I just said, this is this is a huge effort. Uh, and the only thing really going on at the time was the UAS Arc. Now, did you have any participation on the on the UAS Arc? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and. You know, I, I wasn't I, uh, a member of the committee. I was an SMA. Okay, but so this, you know, let me just ask you because you know uh, I first heard about it in 2011 uh, at Peter's show in in uh, Paris, and uh, the FAA. Uh, I think it was Rick Prosak at the time, and he's like, "Ah, we're kicking off this," uh, you know, or maybe it was might have been uh, somebody else, but they were kicking off this UAS arc, and they kind of kept it secret. And I was a little. Uh, was a little vocal about that too, hard to imagine, but uh, I thought that they tried to sneak that in there, and I made a repeated attempts to get on it and contacted Peggy Gilligan, and Peggy just kept was adamant telling me that um, there were going to be no commercial UAS discussions on that arc. It, it was just, I know later on that that really wasn't true, but can maybe you could give us a little flavor of what that arc was like? Well. <laughs> Like every other arc, you know, it was contentious and and a lot of different interests and stakeholders involved in it. Yes, it definitely included commercial. Like, you know, to say otherwise is totally disingenuous. But uh, you know, my input to it was just some of the regulatory stuff and the legal issues. There was only a couple of lawyers that were involved with it. But uh, you know, you could write a book, another book here. Another idea for you is on all of the failed. FA efforts over the years dealing with drones. I mean, that would that'd be a 500-page book by itself, just describing what got started and, and didn't, you know, come to fruition or, or failed for whatever reason or ran out of money or lack of interest or just was a non-starter from the beginning. I mean, and the ARC was another another example of that. Just, yeah, that and the uh, Beyond Visual Line of Sight Action Team, were you a part of that? No, no, I was not. Well, you didn't, you didn't miss much. I think I was the only, uh, our capital was the only people that turned in paperwork on that one. But you're right, there's been a lot of uh, failed efforts, but, um, and it was contentious and all the rest of this. So, you know, so drilling back down to it, um, if, if uh, you know, say I was uh, the transportation secretary, which I'm not, and I came to you and I said, uh, Doug, you know, so, so what do we need to do? We want to fast track this thing. We want, to, we want to be on par with the rest of the world. We want to develop a healthy domestic um, drone and AAM ecosystem that includes hardware manufacturers, software manufacturers, uh, piece, component, component, parts, pieces, uh, industry here. Um, what, what, what should we do? And I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but maybe you can give us a couple ideas what you think. Well, a place to start actually would be what the European Union has done and is doing. I mean, they've actually outlined a, a, a pretty complex architecture or a framework for, for doing this. And they've got challenges that we don't have here. They've got, you know, 27 member states in the EU all have their own interests, you know, that 
and our own domestic drone regulations at the lower levels and and cross-border issues, which we don't have here. Um, but but the framework isn't bad because it really does drill down into, well, I, actually in my book called Domains. I mean, what are the domains that need to be addressed? And there's lots of them, you know, probably 30 at the very least. And every one of those domains requires an exhaustive analytical process to like a structural breakdown of what's required, what the requirements would be, you know, right down to the, you know, the composition of, of the uh, computer chips are going to run the software. Um, so how to capture all that, um, you know, like a super commission of some kind, I'm not sure one person could pull all that together. It would have to have a chair, but, you know, like another drone advisory committee, but really get one that is more focused on solving the technical issues than it is on uh, addressing, you know, commercial opportunities and that sort of thing. That's uh, that'd be a place to start. Well, about this commission, let me just ask you a question with the commission. So one of the things I see even on the DAC is I see too many, um, let's say, what I would call, uh, you know, you have the manned guys, which I don't even know if the manned guys should be on it at, at this point. I mean, I do want them to have buy-in, but I think that we can have some reasonable expectations of what they're going to want. And I think those are discounted. So their participation right now to me almost seems kind of like a waste. And if, for example, I would say like the onboard, uh, certified onboard detect and abort system, would you agree that that's a component for full NAS integration? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it's I, I see clearly and, covered in the EASA regulations. I mean, it's uh, there's whole sections on that. Well, I think so that's the only way. One of the, one of the mantras that I have heard over the years, I think the first person I heard this from was Andy Fitterling, which is, you know, three things that, if I can think of all three of them, number one, no new airspace, and not reconfiguring the airspace, or not creating new airspace, but maybe integrating. Number two, no um, new equipment on manned aircraft. And and the third is, you know, no new cost to the general aviation community. Well, you know, you, you put that, those into the mix and, you know, it isn't going to happen because all of those have been <laughs> on the table for a long time are going to be. Um, exactly. Well, um, I, and I, it's, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, well, just the, um, you know, the other thing with staying under 400 feet, uh, you know, you, you want to talk about, like the, the the oak out there is, you know, trying to integrate an unmanned traffic management system with the existing, uh, you know, ATO machine. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you, I, that's like you know, part in the Red Sea as far as I see it. Am I wrong on that one? <laughs> or, uh, no, no, you're not wrong. It's uh, yeah. You know, the European ver the Europeans approach to this is not to create new airspace, but to integrate a use, use space system into the existing or legacy architectures that, that they think are working pretty well, both low level and high level. And that's their plan is to, to try to somehow mesh all this into one overall system. Whether that's achievable technologically uh, to speak, I don't know. I, I think it probably is in the long run, but I'm not sure that the, the components that are necessary to make this work have even been invented yet. It's funny you say that. Gene, do you, do you, do you have any, uh, I'm sure you got to have a question on how to move the ball forward. 
Uh, let me tell you, yeah, as a uh, small, you know, general aviation pilot myself, you know, that 172 that I've got is more expensive enough to keep up with. It's very difficult for general aviation to absorb those costs. I mean, it's just it's kind of endemic to it, right? Um, and I get uncooperative aircraft. I mean, I've flown around several of them. We've even had some incursions near my airport with paragliders and that sort of thing. But the ATO is definitely stuck in a paradigm, and busting that out is going to be difficult. And, uh, you know, what Doug says is, is right on the money all the way down the line. And, okay, you know, and, and let me, so let me, I'm going to ask both of you guys, you know, just a question. And so, you know, I've talked about, um, you know, there's acceptable levels of risk, and there's actually two paths I want to go down on this. But one of them is, do, do, do you guys believe, and I, I mean, I believe that you could do an incremental um, access to the NAS and, and some beyond visual line of sight operations beyond what I would call the F or the Part 107 FAA favor waivers. And, you know, one scenario I give is this Corn Bluff, Iowa thing where the guy's flying the one pound drone when he's, you know, 40 miles from town and there's no air traffic and, you know, the thing can only fly for 10 minutes or, you know, whatever it is off the shelf. Uh, I, I think you can develop a safety risk matrix that someone could comply with and, and that type of operation could happen. Am, am I uh, deluding myself or do you guys think that that can I work? I think that's true. First. I think that captures an entire segment of, of the user community. Exactly. That's so a very large segment. Right. Exactly. So we, we, we could do it incrementally and in steps, right? We don't have right. to go for the whole enchilada, right. you know, although and, that and enchilada look, well, sounds good. Well, there needs to be, and I think PK says this, and it's in the uh, the NASA FAA CONOPS documents, that it's a, it's an incremental process. It's going to have to be done in, in baby steps. And I think that's the only reasonable way to approach it is you're not just going to be able to design a system that is going to integrate all these different aircraft, UAM, AAM, EV tolls, small U.S., large U.S., all the rest of that, plus manned aircraft, in one big conglomerate that's just going to say, all right, on this day at this hour, the whole thing's going to go live, you know, like the Terminator. And uh, it isn't going to happen, so it's going to have to be small steps. But my fear is, and I think this is the, the overarching vulnerability this entire concept that isn't being dealt with is cybersecurity because those are single point failures potentially and absolutely the idiots in, in russia and elsewhere that they have evil intent can crash into our they can crash you know hacked into the cia and the nsa systems they could shut down the u.s airspace with one click of a, of a mouse and cause untold numbers of deaths of people running into each other. That scares the hell out of me. And I think our system is extraordinarily vulnerable. In fact, I know it is because I have a, a nephew who works in that that sector for Lawrence Livermore Labs, and he, he, this scares the heck out of him. He says, you, you can't yeah, even well, begin to fathom how vulnerable our system is. Oh, I know. You know what that sent it home to me is, so, you know, when, when while working, this was my Las Cruces. Now, that's a rough town. But uh, you know to to live in. But uh, I uh, I was when I was working for the uh, 
the army. Uh, I was doing a lot of work down there at White Sands, and I did actually come out and do a site visit at uh, New Mexico State. Doug gave you the nickel tour of the facility down there. Um, you know, so I had a I had to get a top secret security clearance for the work that I was doing, and that system got hacked. You know, and right. uh, really it hit home for me. And it wasn't only me. When when you get a top secret security clearance, you know they kind of investigate everyone in the house, and uh, you know so we got these letters that uh, you know that have been compromised. And my and my son, you know, who's a my, I'm like, man, what's going on here? So. I don't think I see. I do think that people totally underestimate uh, the vulnerability that we have, and, and and I did talk a little bit about it in the beginning of the conversation of what's going on over there in the Ukraine right now, and what is happening on uh, the internet. Did you did you guys see that deal where uh, people are using uh, satellite imagery to uh, map out where different countries' radars are? Did, right. Did you guys? See that? I mean, that's, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you're, 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 it's that well, the U.S. has the capability, or the West has the capability of knocking out Russian satellites, but a Russian general has already gone on record saying that's an act of war. That's causing Bella. Um, you do that, you may as well launch a nuclear missile because it's the same thing. So that's <laughs> off the table. Uh, well, that's another, it doesn't you know, mean the Russians won't do it. But, or the Chinese. But, you know, that's another the Chinese, that, right. Or the Iranians. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a well, I mean, you know, that's a well, scary thought. It's very scary, and especially for people who are old enough to remember the Cold War. You know, the kids today, you know, they, they think they've got adversity. But, uh, you know, for those of us who uh, lived through the Cold War, you know. I remember the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis very well. I was 14 years old. Oh, yeah. me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah. We, were, we were scared to death. I was living in Southern yeah, California, the center of that aerospace industry that would have gone up in smoke in a nuclear <laughs> world. Well, at least you had sunblock in your bag because you were going yeah. to the beach. There you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, without getting too, uh, you know, macabre on that deal or, or, or Debbie Downer. But so there are chubby, chubby or fish to fry. I do think we could do this incre- incrementally. I've been saying it all along. Um, Doug, I think you gave us some good ideas uh, to how, how to move the ball forward. And, and, I, and I have to agree with you. I, I know, you know, the drone czar proposal thing might be an oversimplification because really it, it does constitute a, a huge amount of work and commitment so that the drones are would probably need some staff uh, to make this happen. But your ideas sound, uh, they're sound to me. Uh, they make sense. I, I think you're looking at things. One other thing I did want to touch on, and you're going to probably remember this because you've been here so long. Um, during the arc, you'll probably remember the representatives from the uh, AOPA and, and ALPA um, were talking about drones meeting an equivalent level of safety. And possibly you remember saying, hey, man, you know, you may want to watch what you wish for because I think when the drone thing comes out, you're not going to have as many fatalities as you do with GA. Do you, do you remember any of that going back and forth? Yes, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. So, you know, today uh, we're at a situation where, and I don't know if you saw DJI put out their flight report, and they basically talked about uh, how many uh, flights happened around the world, and it was like off the top of my head. I wrote it down somewhere, but 76 million 
takeoffs and landings, and they had hours, or not hours flown, but kilometers flown, which is not how we do it. But anyway, just the back of the envelope thing, uh, if each one of those flights was 10 minutes, it, it came up uh, with, you know, um, you know, 12 million flight hours, yada, yada, yada. And the punchline on the deal is no, nothing in the fatalities column. Okay. So now we're in a situation where uh, 10 to the minus five is what GA is running at. And, and we're, you know, again, and I'm not trying to make light of this, but we're a few deaths shy of that 10 to the minus five. Did, did, so at this point, do you, do you think that the FAA should look at this and say, hey, maybe, and this is just an opinion thing, but maybe we, we were too hard over? Well, just that, that metric, that one times 10 to the minus 5 or minus 9 or whatever they think the standard should be, you know, is in a way it's kind of a, a logical fallacy. Uh, anytime you introduce anything, into the airspace, that reduces that number by maybe a minuscule amount, but it does. It's an, an additional risk in the system. Of course, you take something out, you know, when it lands, then it you know, goes back and forth. But introducing a new type of aircraft into a system, I think, increases the likelihood of a mishap by an order of magnitude. Um, so it's you know, that method to me has never made any sense. You know, how do you? How do you quantify that, uh, the risk? So, yeah, it needs to be looked at, but maybe through a different, like a paradigm shift, like is another way to approach that. I don't have the answer to that because I'm not a statistician or aeronautical engineer, but um, right. I think it's an impossible uh, standard to meet, quite honestly. Well, I, you know, I thought it always was kind of proving the negative. Right, Gene? Right. Well, yeah, I, and I think it's uh, an offshoot of the uh, MTBF kind of a deal. You know, we've been trying to calculate that ever since, you know, you got two moving parts together. Right. So I think that's kind of the offshoot of it. Well, and that, and you know, that goes back in – go ahead, Patrick. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. You go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say that goes back into the, the, the drilling down into the architecture of the framework of a UTM system or a U-space system is – Every component of that system, including not only the aircraft, but the ATO element and the communications element and the software and the firmware and the hardware and the human being, the human element, the human in the loop or over the loop or on the loop or not in the loop and autonomous operations. I mean, it goes on and on and on, and every one of those has to be broken down uh, in a functional analysis to say, where, where are the vulnerabilities? Where's the single point failure? And the biggest risk for single-point failures is human beings, either at the design or production phase or just operational. I mean, that's, that's the, the wild card. Yeah, and, that's been the norm for the longest time, the human. Right. Exactly. And, and you know, so uh, with that, I mean, you, you're not you, – you can never have zero risk. You know, and I think you alluded to that, Doug, in what you were saying. Right. So if you introduce something new to the NAS, yes, there's going to be risk. Um, right. And that risk, you know, when you're trying to prove the negative, that that's that it's really hard to do. But you know, so I, I have, you know, you look at these numbers, and yes, we I, I have contacted them, and I'm trying to get it in flight hours so we can do an apples to apples comparison. Um, but the, the thing with it is, is you know, we're, we're never going to have zero risk. 
if we are going to have this this vibrant aviation community and now the FAA is talking about you know STEM and you know the STEM pipeline, which is which is good to me. I'm I'm all good with that. But really, you have to have uh, jobs at the end of that pipeline, or it's all for naught. You know, right. so you can't you can't prove this negative. And the FAA, in some instances, is like, well, see, the fires are working. And I say, uh, if you go over and watch some videos, you know, casually uh, over on uh, YouTube, uh, that totally invalidates that notion because people are doing whatever the hell they want to do and not within the fires. So. I don't, I don't really believe that. And I think it's a little disingenuous on the FAA's part. And I have always said, and, and this probably could be like the, the, the closing note here, is, is that this airspace integration thing has to be a two-way street, not, not just the regulator saying, go, get it, go find us the rock we want. And what, what do you right. say on that? I agree. Absolutely agree. And, and I, I should add that I think a, a drone czar or something like that is a good idea. It may be the only way to pull this this whole effort together after 15 or 16 or 17 years of stagnation or misdirection or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Could that I, be a job for Patrick Egan? Yeah. No, oh, my. No, I'd vote for Patrick. Okay. Yeah. I, I would. Well, I yeah. But as I had written in the uh, the original thing, and I was going to ask you about that, Doug, is how you felt about being picked. But, you know, so here's the deal. I mean, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Okay, and I know when I came up with the drones, our proposal, there was this big president pregnant pause of like, who's he going to nominate Patrick Egan? And I disqualified myself. And you you know this about me, uh, Doug. I have a very low uh, threshold for bullshit and, uh, you know, especially bureaucratic stuff. And when they're throwing it at me, man, it it just it just gets it it just gets my uh, I get my blood starts boiling, man. I can't take it. I, I can't take when people are being disingenuous to my face. It bugs me. So I, I, I'm disqualified. I can't do it. And that's why well, I picked. There, there, are, like, yeah, there are some extraordinarily talented people out there that could fill that role. I mean, they're really yeah. are. Um, yeah. And, and that, that would meet all the qualifications and are willing to do it. And not necessarily well, if they're making a lot of money, but just, you know, just, to, just for the challenge of doing it. Well, and it's a, it, it is something where, you know, I mean, somebody that did take this job on, Right, it is is would be a, a definitely be a legacy thing. You know, you're you're introducing a new segment of in, uh, of innovation and aviation and technology. And the, and the other thing is, I've always said with this unmanned systems, and I know people want to change the nomenclature, whatever, man. But it, it, it's a converging technology, land, air, sea, and space, and we're really missing the boat. That's what that's what I think, and I and I think it's a real heartbreaker. You know, yeah, you guys yeah. concur with that, Doug, first? Yes, I agree. Easily. Gene? Right. <laughs> Easily. I, I, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, I know if I can give you, if you have time, Patrick, can I give you a real quick example of the kind of person? Absolutely. Would fill that role? Uh, my, in my first year of law school, my property, or our property professor was a, a Dean Richard Powell was his name. He basically wrote the book on property law. Um, I attended the Hastings College of Law in San Francisco, and the faculty at that time was made up largely of retired deans and federal judges and professors and authors. We had, it was virtually a 1927 Yankees murderer's row of law professors. There were a bunch of old men, 
that had spent 60 and 70 years teaching and making law. They were unbelievable what they were doing. And Richard Powell was in his 80s when he, when he taught this class. In 1964, there was an earthquake in Alaska, as you may remember, that mm-hmm. basically shifted you know, the, the property lines and the, and the water line and everything else from the whole city of Anchorage. And with all the different factions and people who had, you know, whose buildings and offices were now underwater, had lost everything, and other people who had, you know, homes or businesses up on the hill were now on waterfront. It was such a complex problem to try to sort out how to redraw the property lines in Anchorage so that everybody had an opportunity for equality the way they're being treated, and that the happenstance or or the act of God that, you know, that put them in a poor position should be uh, somehow dealt with or accommodated. So what the state of Alaska did is they hired Professor Powell to come up and they gave him total authority. They said, sort this out for us, redraw the property lines. And he spent a couple of years doing that. And that's what they did. They, you know, he, he was, and he had a team working with him, obviously, but extraordinarily complex issues in dealing with real estate law and riparian law and, and waterfront law, you had you know navigable waters and all all these overlapping interests. But they put a, basically put the task in the hands of one one extraordinarily talented individual, and he solved the problem. And I think that's what we're looking for. And, and so basically, what you know, the punchline on what I'm getting on that is, you believe that it is that it, it is it's a concept that is doable. Yes, I, it is. I believe so. Okay, well, so I'm not. Uh, it's confirmation that I'm not totally nuts, just partially. But nuts. this person, this person that is selected to do this, needs to be about 30 years old because it's going to be the rest of their career. Uh, if that person was picked in that age group, they would definitely need a star chamber of um, advisors because the the one thing with the drones are, and I know that we're all you know getting let's say, uh, further in our careers or whatever, uh, really needs to, to, to be someone that ha- knows uh, what's been tried, what's, what's going you know, to work, and, um, and what's a non-starter. Because, because that's another issue that I think we've had with a lot of these, these groups. Um, you know, they do get a bunch of younger people in there, and I, I do uh, kind of make fun of the cell phone app company people. Bless their heart. They've got a lot of passion and they got a lot of energy and all the rest of that stuff. But look, man, you know, uh, the cell phone app is just not going to cut it. The cell phone app is not going to. Uh, I don't see that integrating with with ATO in, in in let's say airspace over 400 feet. So we need somebody who's going to be able to say, hey, uh, that's a non-starter. And, I, and I'm not being a jerk because it could work, you know, someday or some, it could fit into the puzzle. But today, if we're looking to meet that 2015 deadline, we need to concentrate on this. So that's why I think we need an old hand at NASA integration. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it does. All right. Well, I mean, we, we covered a lot of real estate, and I think we could probably go a whole other hour, but uh, – We'll have to have you back on, Doug, and then maybe, uh, you know, I could get uh, some sort of uh, version of this this book, you know, excerpts or something, or a bridge version or something where I don't have to pay the 125 bucks because I'm a starving student. <laughs> we could... Uh, oh, for the, for, the new, for the new book, you mean? The one that's coming out? Yes. Yeah, I'll see if I can arrange yeah. to get you a copy. You too, Jim. 
Yeah, appreciate and, uh, it. We, I'd like to have you back on, and then you know maybe we could kind of do like a you know a forensic <laughs> podcast of the ten years that it take you to uh, you know complete this book. And, and and talk about some of the complexities, and then where we're going to go in like next year, you know, is that, is that yeah, possible? I would, I would, yeah, that's possible. I wouldn't wish a ten-year project on anybody. So that's, you know, <laughs> it's it's one thing for you know a recognized author to write some uh, magnum opus, you know, that's taken forever to do. But I'm not in that category. I'm just trying to do this technical thing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you uh, chronicled it, and I think more people need to do that. Uh, you know, and maybe I should make a little note to myself here, but uh, I'll find that as an inspiration. But all right, Doug. Well, um, you know, thank you for coming on and sitting in the hot seat. I, I hope it wasn't. I mean, I, I did ask some, some pointed <laughs> questions, and I hope it wasn't too much, but. You know, it's a kind of a little bit of a vetting process for uh, someone that I believe could could do this job, um, which you know, um, I, I don't. Uh, you've earned your chops, you know, so that that's why I I nominated you. And uh, with that, yeah. I'll say, you know, we'll see everyone yeah, next I'm, week. I'm flattered and, that you would consider me. So you know, <laughs> hey, you earned it, man. You know, I didn't pick anyone because I thought you know just because we were buddies or whatever. You, you earned it. You, you, you earned your chops. You, you were uh, As you, you all know, we didn't, we didn't start out as buddies, so it, our relationship has evolved over the years. So, No, but you know what? We did uh, We did have differences, and I had differences right. with a lot of people. Uh, and I really, um, you know, even on that ARC experience, I had, in, in retrospect with, with, you know, us coming up with those uh, – let's say proposed regulations in that nine years it took for them to come out. I think I might've been, some people have called me. I had even the guy from Alpha called me and he's like, man, you know, we, we thought you were kind of a loud mouth on the ark, but <laughs> Jesus, Mary and Joseph, you were right. And you deserve to be upset because they did, they didn't really, uh, they were a little disingenuous, but it, it was, a, it was a bumpy ride, but you know, we got over that and that's okay. And I yeah. think, uh, you know, I respected you more for it. And I, I think, you know, I'm assuming it was mutual, but you know, yeah, uh, there was a lot at stake, and uh, yep. there still is. So, if you want to, if you all, want to put a put all, a number that to that, if you want to put a number to that process, it was exactly seven years, four months, and twenty days from the day that we submitted the recommendations to the day that the rule went into effect. Wow, uh, that that's a that's a that was a long prohibition, man. Yep. And uh, that's too bad. But uh, All right. Well, Doug, again, thank you for being on. I, I, I want to thank the listeners for hanging in there. I, again, you know, this program, I, I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, but the, but the content like this, to me, it's gold. Uh, you're not going to get this anywhere else. You're not going to get this uh, level of expertise with the guests anywhere else. I'm tooting my own horn a little bit, but I appreciate you being on, sir. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. It's good to talk to you again, Jane. It's been a long time. Yeah, Doug, it is. It's great. <laughs> All right. See you guys next time. All right. Thank you. I'll be safe. Bye-bye. Bye.